0: Let's transition into does regeneration precede faith? Does faith precede regeneration? Jordan, I'll let you lead uh, this part of the segment, uh, this segment of the episode, I should say, and then we will take audience questions Um, again, since we are at the two hour mark. What we'll do is we will for sure take super chats. Uh, I cannot guarantee because we've already got a lot of questions. Uh, but I cannot guarantee that we will get to all of the questions. But if you send us a super chat, we will for sure get to your questions uh, and prioritize them over the rest. Uh, if not, we may or may not get to your questions. So Jordan, it's all on you, brother. You've been quiet. Now's your time to step up to the plate. Enjoy. All right. Well, <laughs> Go ahead. well
1: I'll, I'll try to, uh, I'll try to keep this, this short. Um, I wanted to just kind of start out with a with a couple quotes um, that, that I'll just share and, and see how this strikes you guys. So to say that God must regenerate the sinner first in order for them to be able to come to Christ is like saying a doctor needs to first rid his patient of cancer before that patient will be able to receive the treatment. Um, and to say that God must first regenerate the sinner before they can seek Christ for help or trust in him for salvation is like saying God needed to first restore the sight of the blind man before they were able to cry out to Jesus for help. And so, I, to me, putting it that way just kind of summarizes what, in my mind, is the absurd backwardness of of regeneration precedes faith. And this is, this to me is one of the, you know, well, not just to me, but to even, you know, those like R.C. Sproul will say that the essence of reformed theology can be summed up in this phrase, regeneration precedes faith. And so, you know, whether or not regeneration does precede faith is no small matter. And whether or not the Bible supports this concept is no small matter, um, and so, you know, to me, to kind of extrapolate from those quotes and, and and what I see happening in this concept, God must first, according to Calvinism, because we are dead in sin, He must first make the soul alive, uh, and. and Different Calvinists might use different terminology. I've been, you know, as I've kind of presented certain arguments in this area, I've had Calvinists kind of push back even against using the terminology of life, uh, which which was a bit odd to me. Um, But God first must make the soul alive so that then that person is able to come to Jesus. So what this does in my mind This really gets back to um, you know our our last discussion, actually, when I I discuss what I call my uh, you know the critical error in Calvinism. Really, what is my primary issue? It's it's what Calvinism does with Christology. I think it regeneration precedes faith basically makes life something separate and distinct from Christ Himself. Now, this is where Calvinists would have you know, and, and what many of them will do is they'll they'll create. You know different versions different forms of life so there's regeneration life and then there's some would call it eternal life um and so there's that regeneration life we get when god you know raises us from spiritual deadness to spiritual life and that enables us to come to christ um but jesus is the life he said i am the resurrection and the life um and you know i i don't know how much time we'll have here, but if we, you know, John six is just chock full of Jesus making this this case that life is entirely dependent. This thing, life, spiritual life, is dependent on consuming Him, um, and I think we we see this in the way God made mankind. We must eat food to get the energy, the sustenance, the life that food gives to us. We don't get life in order to eat food, but we get life from the food that we consume. And and so in the same way, Jesus presents himself as the bread of life, that image bearing humanity must partake in. We must consume him. We must eat him. We must have a, a personal, intimate, relational connection, closeness, interaction with the son of God and partake of him In a personal way, and that becomes our life. And so I think when the Calvinist says that first regeneration precedes faith, it separates life from Christ, as if life is something that is had independent from Christ or before Christ. We don't we aren't made spiritually alive because we become connected to the one who himself is the resurrection and the life. No, we first are made alive so that then we can subsequently become connected to Christ and so it's it's just if you think of it on this timeline and I don't you know the question I ask Calvinists at this point is what what is that life because Jesus claimed to himself be life he he himself is the way the truth the life I am the resurrection and the life Um, and so what is this what is this regeneration life that we are somehow experiencing uh, partaking in while we have not yet come, we have not yet believed in, we have not yet trusted in uh, the one who himself is life. If we go to John 6, 32, uh, Jesus then said to them, uh, and I don't, I don't know if you want to pull this on, on screen real quick, Tyler. Jordan, um, if you
0: want to, my, since it my be, computer's lagging, I can't. If you want to, go ahead. Okay.
1: Let, let me just do that real quick. It'll probably be worth it.
0: Yeah, and then once you pull it up, I'll add it. Okay, so John six thirty two. 32. Whoops, sorry. There you go. Let me
1: see if I can zoom in a bit. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So this bread, that is Christ himself, is what gives life to the world. Uh, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Um, And then if we jump down to John 6, 50, this is the bread that comes down out of heaven so that anyone may eat from it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If, If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. And so you know, I don't want to read too much into that, but I think here we're seeing, and and there's you know so many other explicit uh, what might be categorized as proof texts that I think give a a completely different order than uh, regeneration preceding faith. But I think in this, what you know, what I'm seeing is a bit of an order showing up. This this bread that comes down of heaven must be eaten um, in order to have uh, life. If you eat this bread. The result is life, living forever. Uh, You don't get some kind of, you know, forever life that enables you to then eat the bread, but that bread itself, consuming the bread, is the life. Um, And the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so, this last section here in John 6, uh, John 6 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in yourselves he didn't say unless you unless you first consume me eat me partake in me you have some life you're you, you'll you, you still have to get regenerative life before this interaction takes place of you consuming me personally mm, yeah. he says no it, unless you first eat jesus you have precisely no life not regenerative life not uh eternal life no life and so that's where again i would say what is this regeneration precedes faith what regeneration this regenerative life god giving life to the soul what what is it because this is something that takes place before the act of us eating consuming christ and so if we get no life until till this point here, then what is this life over here? It's something separate than our, our communion uh, uh, with Christ himself. Uh, and then 54, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drink my blood remains in me and I in him just as the living father sent me and this this is kind of i think this this statement here kind of pops out to me just as the living father sent me and i live because of the father the one who eats me he also will live because of me so what what makes us live well we live because we have consumed the one who is life we have consumed the living bread Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there's so much more in this presentation that I will, I'll, I'll, stop here because I, I know we're, we're running long, but I, I wanted to just kind of put this out here, um, and, and see your guys's thoughts on this. I don't see a whole lot of people emphasizing this point. Um, uh, a, a, a ton, I have seen this, you know, I, in a debate with, um, with Leighton Flowers, and I cannot remember the, the pastor's name, but Leighton kind of pushed on a, a similar point here. Uh, and this this was a, a debate with a Calvinist between uh, Dr. Flowers. But, you know, th- this kind of point came up where the, the question was, you know, something along these lines of what, what, what is this life? If Jesus says we have no life until we consume him, then how, how are we getting regenerative life before, you know, we're getting with this regenerative regeneration life in order to come to Christ. But how is that not flipping this whole schema of things um, upside down? How is this not inverting it? Um, So what's, what's your guys' thoughts on that?
0: Jordan, I know, I know you strategically did this because you're trying to be deceptive, right? But I noticed that you strategically skipped over John six forty four because before you even eat the bread that is Jesus, you have to come to him first. And John six forty four, Jesus says that, of course, no one can come to me because there's something you're talking about order. There's something that has to happen before you even come to Jesus, before you can even eat him and that you have to be given or, or the father has to draw you. See, me, let me use the t- words of the Bible. Don't want to misquote him. But God has to draw you first. Then you come to Jesus, and that drawing's the regeneration, right? Then you eat. And Is it, though? You're sanctified. No. Oh, hold on. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, right. So here's the thing. And and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think that's how the Calvinist response would would somewhat go. That's the way I oh, would yeah. have argued it yeah. as the a, a, as a Calvinist. But you're right, Jordan, you nailed it. Because if drawing then is regeneration, Jesus says six chapters later that he's going to draw all men to himself, all of them, right? And now what Calvinists will do, they can still keep that that idea that regeneration and drawing are the same thing, right? But what they will do is they will say the, the, the famous or infamous uh, understanding of the word all or pos in the Greek, well, in this scenario, all doesn't necessarily mean all. it just refers to all of the elect right It, it means all when
2: we say it means all and it doesn't mean all when we don't say it means all <laughs> that's when right it doesn't mean all
0: yeah. that's right so I just I, I didn't want to like jump in there yeah. uh, but but Phil, go ahead uh, I just wanted to give that that Calvinist stool, man yeah so, um, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I I would uh I, I love what you said, Jordan. It's it's uh and and by the way, to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood is a metaphor for believing in the book mm-hmm. of John, in John chapter six. And and believing then leads to life. And so believing, having faith, has to precede life. Otherwise, what Jesus was saying was rambling quackery. So um, but I wanna I want to give you a quote from a theologian on this on this subject of whether faith precedes regeneration or the other way around. The quote is this. It may be thought that the evangelist, he's talking about John in chapter 1, reverses the natural order by making a regeneration to precede faith, whereas on the contrary, it is an effect of faith and therefore ought to be placed later. So let me read that again. It may be thought that the evangelist reverses the natural order by making regeneration to precede faith, whereas on the contrary, it is an effect of faith. In other words, regeneration is an effect of faith and therefore mm-hmm. ought to be placed later. The theologian yeah. that made that statement was John Calvin.
1: Hmm. That's interesting.
2: So my message to all Calvinists everywhere would say, if you think that regeneration precedes faith, then you're disagreeing with your hero, John Calvin, because he denies that. He contradicts that statement. According to John Calvin, regeneration is an effective faith and therefore must be placed after faith. So um, but there I, I go through lots and lots of verses in the Bible that um, where when jesus talks about having life and where the actual author of the book of john speaks of having life that you may believe that you might have life in his name the order is always unmistakable belief always Mm -hmm. leads to having life every single time but the other thing that that um that we need to consider um is is a little little landmine that is embedded in the book of Romans, chapter 4, um, and in that chapter, um, I'm going to, let me pull it up here so I can get the right, right reading of it. Um, Actually, let me, let me look for it in the regular text here. So, um,
1: and uh, Tyler, I do want to get to, uh, uh, 44 here in a minute. I think it's like, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't want to, I don't, don't want to dismiss that one because I think that's, that is, so, that's where my mind went as I, as I went from, you know, one section of the text to the next, I was like, Oh, mm. you know what? Yeah. But I mean, it, it's because we have about thirty minutes to do this, and we're not going to exegete John six. But right. but that would no, be they, the immediate that would be the immediate response.
0: So the did only you see how I he
1: conveniently it? jumped over? You're right. Before, so yeah. so, yeah, so I, only, I would like. There's some things I want to say about that here in a minute. But
0: okay. sure, sure. The only reason I said that is because so I've got a signed copy of the Potter's uh, the uh, Potter's Freedom from uh, James White, and whenever he signed that. Like at the bottom, he wrote John six forty four, and so that came to mind whenever you were saying that, and I was like, oh, I've got to throw that in there. So anyway, yeah. by the way, I'm sell, I'm selling did. that copy to the highest bidder. That if anybody <laughs> wants a he signed bang. copy of the Potter's Freedom by Dr. James White, uh, the bidding is starting at three thousand dollars. So just anybody <laughs> is, is interested. <laughs> That's in fair. That. That's yeah, fair. yeah, yeah, yeah. Go go ahead. Phil. I'll consider buying for him. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, um,
2: so real, and I'll try to make this brief, but Romans 4, 5 says, However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, my first question would be, is there any Calvinist anywhere who would say that the ungodly and the regenerate can be the same person? In other words, can can someone who is regenerated be ungodly, and does someone who is ungodly be regenerated? And and I, I I can't conceive of any possible way that the Calvinists would ever agree that someone who is unre- who is regenerated is still ungodly. Hmm. And some of the translations will translate that word hmm. wicked the God who justifies the Mm -hmm. wicked, God who justifies the ungodly. Now, what triggers justification, according to the Bible? It's faith. Faith triggers justification. If God justifies the ungodly, and the ungodly and the unregenerate are the same class of people, then God justifies the unregenerate. Yeah, there's this little jewel in in Romans four or five. God justifies the ungodly, and I made a comment in the book that said that's it, it's scandalous that God would justify the ungodly, that God would say to the ungodly, the unregenerate, the depraved, the wicked, and say you are not guilty of sin. Mm-hmm. That's that's a scandal, as far so as the it, whole it, it world kinda... religions are concerned. It gets into where
1: you kind of have these people with these contradictory uh, identities where they're existing, you know, and this gets into unconditional election as well, because you have these people who, quote unquote, belong to God as his sheep. But yet, you know, you'll have places in Romans 8 and Galatians that will say things like, you know, those who do not have the spirit of Christ do not belong to him. Uh, galatians will say those who belong to christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires so you have this category of people who are they belong to god while they belong to christ as a sheep simultaneously while they are are also identified as not belonging to him they're according to ephesians 2 belonging to christ chosen elected before the foundation of the world god's special people um Simultaneously chosen and separate from Christ without God and without hope. And so you have people with these contradictory identities where they're simultaneously existing as belonging to God, but yet also being identified as those who are, you know, have this special, unique privilege as being chosen before the foundation of the world, uh, which which would get into this whole other conversation of are, are the elect of Calvinism ever really in any real danger of of hell or they ever really could you could you rationally logically say that they were lost in any meaningful sense um that they were without hope or without god or separated from christ could you say that of the elect in any meaningful sense and and i don't think you could and and to your verse and and was that romans four phil romans five yeah romans five so um, Romans 4-5 Okay, so in Romans 5, 1 and 2 Paul says this He says, therefore Since we have been justified through faith We have peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ Through whom we have gained Access by faith Into this grace In which we stand And, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God So how, how do we gain access to God's grace, how do we get through the door into the realm in which we we possess the grace of God? Well, it's through faith. Re- this, this regeneration precedes faith, though. Would say no. The grace of God. Well, I mean, it comes at regeneration. That's that's the 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 you know a very significant moment of God dispensing his his grace to the lost sinner. But even further than that, obviously back. Uh, before the foundation of the world, what what wonderful grace it was that God gave to to his elect that he he chose them before the foundation of the world. God's grace has really, in a sense, been connected to the elect from before the foundation of the world. Um, but but you know, in this context of regeneration precedes faith, the grace of regeneration is given to the elect in order to then have faith well paul paul says no that that grace is behind the door of faith if you will if you want to get access to this grace that god has available in the gospel in christ the doorway that you access that through is faith and and so i think that would just go quite well along with with the verse in in romans 4 that you just read
2: let, let me just share something real quickly and i'll try to do this as quick as i can um Another passage from a theologian is, if I'm to preach faith in Christ to a man who is regenerated, then the man being regenerated is saved already. And it is an unnecessary and ridiculous thing for me to preach Christ to him and bid him to believe Mm -hmm. in order to be saved when he is saved already being regenerate. But you will tell me that I ought to preach it only to those who repent of their sins very well but since true repentance of sin is the work of the spirit and any man who has repentance is most certainly saved because evangelical repentance can never exist in an unrenewed soul where there is repentance. There is faith already for they never can be separated. So then I am only to preach faith to those who have it absurd. Indeed, it is not, is not this waiting until the man is cured and then bringing him to the medicine. Is this, this is preaching Christ to the righteous and not to sinners. That mm-hmm. is a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who mm-hmm. was an who was
1: a hardcore Calvinist.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And can, even can you Charles read that
0: part?
1: Spurgeon. Can you read that part again about the the sickness preaching that because that that sounds awfully familiar to the quote that I read earlier?
2: Right, it says. So then, I am I? I am only to preach faith to those who have it. Absurd indeed, is not this? Waiting till the man is cured and then bringing him the medicine. This is preaching Christ to
1: the righteous and not to sinners. Hmm. So it's it's this idea that that first God the Father must must cure the sinner of their deadness to, in sin. He must give them this this. This cure of regeneration life, so that then they are able to come to the one who is, is is Christ Himself, not the cure. So you're getting the cure in order to come to the cure, right? Which seems which seems a bit uh, backwards or problematic um, at best, right? And in the Book of Acts,
2: um, Acts uh, eleven. Verse eighteen, um, it says, "So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life."
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But if if regeneration precedes faith, then it would be life that leads to repentance. But it does; it's not and that way.
1: Is, yeah,
2: yeah. In the text, it and says, this is
1: where. Sorry, go ahead. Phil, finish it
2: I was just to say in the text it says God has granted repentance at least to life. Yeah, that's all I was going to say. So, go ahead. Yeah.
1: And so at this at this point I would just say that the Calvinists would have to somehow do what seems to be typically done in these cases when they're they're kind of confronted with what at least on the surface seems to be a, a pretty clear contradiction to their system is that they would have to create again, different versions of life. And so that life, fill that you just referenced in Acts, they would have to make that something separate and distinct from whatever regeneration life is. Um, and, and I'm not all too sure exactly how, how they would do that. Well, I would, I would ask a simple question.
2: Where in Scripture does... Is, is, where does the Bible ever differentiate between two kinds of life right and if if the bible never differentiates between two kinds of life then what is the basis for the calvinist trying to differentiate between two kinds of life isn't that isn't that just basically taking your antecedent ideology and imposing it on scripture isn't that begging the question
1: yeah um we have colossians 3 4 where paul says when christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then John 14, 6, which I've already referenced, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, John 1, 4, in him, Christ, in Jesus, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Where where is life? This this life that we need, it's in him. It's no, it's it's not said to be anywhere else. It's not said to be both in him and out of him. No, it's within this connected union with the Son of God. That is where life, This is that's the sphere in which life is experienced. Um, John 11, I Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, John 11, 25, where, again, I am the resurrection and the life. Life is not something separate and distinct from Christ, as if God gives you life and then gives you Jesus. No, God gives you Jesus, you get Jesus and in him, you get everything else, including life. Um, and then, then uh, the last one here is first John five, 12, whoever has the son has life. Well, why would that be? Well, because the son is life. Do you, do you want life? Go to the son because he is, he is himself the resurrection and the life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So this, this, sinner, this uh, person who has just been regenerated, you know, and again, the order is made very, it's given a lot of prominence and importance here, the ordo salutis, that this regeneration must precede the coming to Christ. You have to first be made alive in order to come to and believe. So you, you coming near to the Son of God, you coming near to the source of life, you have to get life first to do that. So if if John tells us that whoever does not have the son of God does not have life, then are we to say then that this person who has just been regenerated, uh, but they have not come, you know, the regeneration precedes faith. Do they have Christ at this point or, uh, is this regeneration life their experience of having christ that then leads them to be enabled to come to christ so it it, it's it's it just kind of becomes a bit of uh, a confusing scenario here um where again It just brings me back to asking, what what is this life? Is this life this regeneration life? Is it Christ Himself? Are we somehow getting Christ in some some experience, some form of Christ? Is 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 you know we are partaking of Him in this act of regeneration, and then that enables us to come to Him to believe in Him. Um, It just seems it seems a bit absurd. Um, And as you said if the Bible gives us no reason to, to believe that, that life is something that is separated into to various kinds or categories, then why, why would we separate it in that way? Especially since the explicit texts, as as you've read a few, and there's so many more, regeneration precedes faith is one of those that I you just, there are not very good proof texts for that, that doctrine. I think it's one of the most, Uh, 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 difficult aspects of Calvinism to try to argue for, because it's not only is is it lacking, severely lacking any just clear, explicit text that will say that order. Not only that, but it has the the scriptures are full, both old and new Testament of, of, of texts that do give a clear, explicit order. And they will say things like, you know, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Uh, Whoever has the sun has life. Whoever does not have the sun does not have life. Um, Isaiah 55, come to the waters. Uh, come and listen. It, uh, Isaiah 55 will say, hear that your soul may live. So what happens first there? You first hear so that then your soul is made alive. Well, that 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 just completely revert uh, inverts regeneration precedes faith. And R.C. Sproul, who will emphasize, that it's you know, the soul being made alive at regeneration. Well, in order in, in, in the system of Calvinism for a, a an unregenerate person who's dead in sin, for them to be able to hear in the first place requires that first they're made alive. You can't hear, uh, uh, you can't respond, you can't come to the waters as uh, Isaiah 55 compels and beckons us to do. You cannot do that unless your first your soul is made alive to be made able to do so and so why is it that isaiah 55 is compelling us to first come if we want to be made alive well there's an onus on us to do something to respond to come to to eat the bread and drink the wine without money and without cost which you know i think Pretty good reason to believe that perhaps Jesus in John six had some of these these things in his mind, uh, uh, as he was as he was kind of giving this this discourse about being the bread of life and and kind of making that same you know giving that same offer to to come to him.
2: Yeah. Let me let me just read a real quick excerpt. This is one for free. Um, In the final analysis, the reason regeneration must precede faith for the Calvinist is that the unregenerate are supposedly unable to place their faith in Christ due to the fact that they're dead. Does that mean that after they come to life, they are suddenly able to place their faith in Christ? If it doesn't mean that, why does their inability to place their faith in Christ while they're still dead matter? If they're still unable to place their faith in Christ even after they've been resuscitated, What's the point of insisting that they cannot do so beforehand? So the the regenerated person must be able to place their faith in Christ because that's what regeneration supposedly enables them to do, Calvinism 101. But we're talking about a deterministic model here where the will of God is the only cause of all things, which must therefore include people placing their faith in Christ. So what has happened to this newly acquired ability to exercise that faith? It doesn't exist. You don't do things you are causally determined to do because you're able to do them. You do them because you're causally determined to do them. Under Calvinism, people don't place their faith in Christ because they're able to. They do it because God programs them to. The only ability that matters here is God's, not man's. If lack of ability was the issue that was stopping the zombies from putting their faith in Christ, but human ability doesn't exist under determinism, why can't God cause and determine them to place their faith in Christ before they come back to life? Their ability doesn't Mm -hmm. have anything to do with it under determinism. That means God can cause people to do things in any order under the sun, and therefore every argument the Calvinist presents about what order things have to occur in on the basis of ability is a model of absurdity.
3: Mm -hmm. Awesome. I I just want to step in because I have a bit of a question. So I I totally agree with your guys' takes, uh, biblically speaking and stuff like that. I think you guys have given great answers that faith and repentance and stuff. These are preconditions for regeneration. So I'm not going to argue you guys on that front. But I did want to kind of raise a metaphysical, possible metaphysical or philosophical, uh, objection that I've heard that, and I tried to couch it in terms that maybe a Calvinist might raise. So they might say, okay, why, the question is, why these preconditions? Is it just arbitrary? Like, why Why do we need faith and repentance in order to be regenerated? It is, is it, are these arbitrary conditions commanded by God? Or if they're necessary in some way, doesn't that kind of diminish God's sovereignty in some way? Um, yeah, like, how, how would you guys kind of respond to that objection if a Calvinist raised that?
1: Well, well, I don't know that I'd have a ton of thoughts, so I'll pass this off to Phil pretty quick. But, uh, but I would say my my initial thoughts to that would just be that faith, faith and trust are fundamental elements of of a relationship, of, of a relational dynamic existing. And so, so the importance to me is that 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 faith and trust is what I like. I use. The terminology of of connection, because when I think of Christianity, I, I think of I think of it really coming down to, in its essence, it's about us being close to our Creator. We are we are made, you know. There's this marriage uh, uh, analogy used of, of the church and believers. We are joined to Christ. We are made one with Him, as as a husband is made one with his wife, and so so, you know life is is something that is experienced through an intimate relational you know a, a living and acting knowing of, of jesus christ of knowing him in a personal intimate way that that knowledge that is something different than you know doctrinal uh uh you know assertions it's 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 as my relationship with, with my wife. And so I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but I think to me at least one element of why faith and trust are important and why life is, is hinged on our trusting, uh, it, it's kind of like the, the there's a proverb that talks about how can two how can two walk together unless they be in agreement? And so it's this agreement that allows this coming coming together in an intimate way so that we can partake of everything that God is, everything that Christ is for us. Um, uh, as, a, as a branch is engrafted, joined, connected intimately with with the vine. So we must be with Christ. And I think that that comes you know that again, that's a analogy I think for the, this relational intimacy that happens between the believer and and god and their union um with each other and and so again don't don't know exactly if that answers your question but that would be uh kind of my initial thoughts there
3: yeah awesome yeah perfect and and phil what's what's your take is you know is are god's preconditions just an arbitrary thing on his part it could have been other conditions or if they're necessary in the way that kind of jordan was saying doesn't that limit God's sovereignty? He, the only way He can have a He can regenerate us is by the fulfillment of these preconditions.
2: Well, um, I mean, if if God has stated categorically that faith is required in order for us to be justified and saved, um, then it automatically isn't going to diminish God's sovereignty because God's sovereignty was was what inspired him to set up those conditions in the first place um but i, I think there's a there's a a fundamental uh erroneous definition of sovereignty that you find in the yeah. calvinism within within the orbit of calvinism um And that is that under under Calvinism, God's sovereignty is his causality over all things, over all the universe. And I think that's a faulty definition of sovereignty. Because if God does not cause any effect that occurs in the universe, then he is no longer sovereign and the Calvinist is going to fall apart. John Calvin falls apart. You know, John Calvin had this emotional dependence on God's sovereignty, as defined, as though it was the the cause of all things that occur in the universe. And if anything occurred that God didn't cause, then it would move; at, the world would move at random, and there would be something outside of God's causal control. And that would that made John Calvin lose his mind. It made him it made him have a nervous breakdown. You know. <laughs> God yeah. has to be in causal control of everything in order to be sovereign. But if you reject that definition of sovereignty and accept the, the better definition, which is the biblical definition of sovereignty, and that is that his lordship over all of creation and his lordship even over free creatures. You know, A. W. Tozer said that that man has free will because God is sovereign. That God in his sovereignty chose to endow man. With libertarian free will. And that a God who was not sovereign would be afraid to do that because he's too insecure. Um, and I contend in the book several times that that Calvin's God is too insecure, that he has to be a cosmic bully and, and he has to cause everything to occur in order to get anything done. I'm a whole lot more impressed with a God who can get everything that he wants to get done done, even though man has libertarian freedom. I mean, that impresses me. For a God to just control all things, and the only way that he can get his will accomplished is to control everything and to cause everything himself, and to not allow any other causal agency in the universe, that doesn't impress me. That's not a God worth worshiping, in my in my view. I would rather worship a God who can get anything that he wants to get done, even though man still has libertarian free will. Whew, that's That's pretty amazing that he can do that. Mm-hmm. That's that that astounds me. So I think this this idea that that if if there are preconditions that depend on man in order to secure individual salvation, that 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 somehow diminishes God's sovereignty, um I, I think that's a little bit, I think that's kind of misguided um, because uh, the Calvinists will tell you that, Faith is only given to those that God is predetermined to save, and that those who God does not predetermined to save He will not give the gift of faith to. And I contend that faith is a human faculty that God has given to everyone, just like thought, imagination, and and memory. Uh, all these all these things are human faculties that all human beings possess, and faith is no different. Um, faith is we have if we're non-believers, we still have faith in airline pilots. We still have faith in doctors. We we place our faith in our spouses. Um, we we trust those that, that are close to us. And we have faith in them that they aren't going to betray us. So um, faith is something that's built in to all human beings. And it's, it is a gift of God, but he gives it to everybody. And so the fact that faith is a precondition for justification, um, I think, is pretty much the natural way that God would do things. I, I, it's it's exactly what I would expect of God, if I were mm-hmm. to conceive of of this entire if of, of this entire scenario, you know, on my own. So I don't know if that helps or not, but yeah, um, perfect.
3: No, and, uh, between you and Jordan, that was the perfect answer. Both of you guys combined gave uh, a great answer for both of those <laughs> horns. So thank you guys. Yeah,
1: I, I, I was just gonna, the, I was just gonna reemphasize with that that I think at the be, you know. Is, is does that limit God that this precondition of faith must be met? I think it it it's sort of bringing in Calvinistic assumptions into the question. Like like Phil already talked about, you're kind of assuming a specific definition and understanding of what God's sovereignty means and what that must look like um, in order to really, um, if I'm understanding the question correctly, to to be motivated to ask that question in the first place. Um, and so I think if you remove that definition and and replace it with a more accurate one that does not entail edd then then i think the questions uh potency kind of diminishes um and i would also say that i I wouldn't even i personally wouldn't put it as god had to do it that way like god was limited that unless we believed he was not capable of of you know, making us alive in this instance. I don't know exactly. I, I, I want not you know, I want to make a dogmatic argument at this point um, in this area. But I would just say perhaps God could have, you know, to use somewhat maybe pejorative language, zapped us with, with something called life and just made us alive so that we would want to come to him necessarily. Perhaps he could have done it that way. But I think it's a reflection of who God is. God's God's character, as Phil is just you know kind of ending with God's character, who He is, is is revealed in that He did choose to do it this way. He wanted it to be an agreement between two uh, uh, parties, um, and I think you know arguments have been made uh, about what happens to the concept of, of love. Um, if, if this isn't, you know, the scenario that there is this agreement where, where two parties, uh, individually become, become one. And so, so, so yeah, just, I just wanted to kind of emphasize that I don't.
2: That that's why it's called the new covenant. It's a covenant between man and God. And, um, right. But, but, but the Calvinists will tell you that if, if. If we have to place our faith in Christ by a libertarian free will decision in order to be saved, then that means our salvation depends on us. And it means that we're cooperating with God. And so the idea that mm-hmm. that's called synergism, the idea that that man and God work together and that man makes a part, makes some kind of contribution to his salvation. And and I think that's extremely faulty um, because mm-hmm. I draw the analogy in the book of, of somebody who is out at sea and they're drowning and the coast guard comes along and throws them a rope and they grab the rope or they grab the life preserver and they're pulled to safety and then they go ashore and they're interviewed by the press you know and the police and the reporters are all around you know the, you know because they're covering this 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 gallant rescue and and uh, the person who was saved out of the out of from drowning says to the press well you know, I'm just so proud of myself. I saved myself because I grabbed that light preserver. And therefore, I can take all the credit for all of the, you know, of, of the fact that I'm alive right now. I, I can take all the credit for this. And it was I was cooperating with the yeah. Coast Guard. Well, it was the Coast Guard yeah. who had the boats the coast guard had the life preserver the coast guard had the search and rescue equipment you know so it was all the work of the coast guard if it hadn't been for the coast guard there's no way i would have been been saved so to say that my simple little decision to reach out and grab a life preserver makes salvation all about me is is absurd it's it's just just ridiculous What, what what when when i reach out for that life preserver I am making a statement. I am demonstrating that I can't save myself; that I'm utterly dependent on the Coast Guard to save me. And so, grabbing the life preserver is an act of surrender. It's an act of desperation. It's an act of "I." There's no other way that I'm going to be able to save myself, and I'm ever, and I'm going to give up ever thinking that I could. And so, that's that's actually surrender. It's not control, um, and and so. To to say that that somehow diminishes God's sovereignty, I think is is kind of rather silly, really. You know, because mm-hmm. it's totally it's agree. it is the ultimate surrender. It's the ultimate humiliation. I can't save myself. The only my only hope, my rope is my only hope. And so, uh, you know, yeah. I think that's a it, you know.
3: yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Ahead. Yeah. No. Perf- perfectly said. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you how much I've heard that analogy used against me because I'm not a Calvinist when I used to attend a Calvinist church. And I'm just like, no, this isn't a me centered or me doing anything. Look, it's, it's, it's God who's the one meriting my salvation and everything like that. So yeah, uh, well said on both of your guys' account and Tyler, I I saw you were trying to get in earlier. So like, yeah, I don't know what,
0: well, it, It comes, you know, a lot of this too comes from this false assumption that like everything we do or everything we participate in merits something, right? And exactly with Phil's analogy of the life preserver, grabbing onto the life preserver did not some way, did not earn your salvation at that point, right? You didn't do anything to earn. The fact that the life preserver was thrown to you anyway, what you were doing was drowning. (laughs) And if we want to, I mean, are we going to say that, well, I was drowning, therefore that's a work. Therefore, I earned my salvation because I was drowning. That's crazy. And I realized
1: I acknowledged that I was drowning and therefore the Coast Guard was then obligated to pull me in. You know, it's not just right. that, that you grabbing a hold of the life preserver now now earns or merit. It's like now the Coast Guard is obligated. It, it sort of assumes that now the Coast Guard has to. They have no choice. No, right. the Coast Guard decides even then to drag you in because they're nice people and they want to okay. do their job well. If they right. wanted to, they could say, oh, you know what? This guy's actually uh, whatever. Let's just not. Say. I mean, they okay. could do that. And and with your point with the news, Phil, what rational, logical, you know, person would, in any any sense, give credit, you know, because this is the whole issue: who gets the credit here? Who gets the credit for salvation? Uh, uh, the Calvinists would have coast- to say that, in some way. Go ahead. Go ahead, Phil. Well, I was just well, say I, I was just going to say. If, if I'll the give Coast it to you. Are-
2: if the Coast Guard heard that interview, they'd all look at each other like I was an idiot. <laughs>
1: yes, right. Well, this, well, this imagine, guy. Imagine him. a uh, <laughs> this guy. Uh, imagine himself. a news report. Imagine a yeah. news report coming out saying, "Man lost at sea, uh, heroically helps rescue himself from you know his <laughs> ultimate demise." It's like well, what? Well, let's not let's not read the news articles from this. <laughs>
2: Yeah, this place I, anymore. I, made, I mean, I mean, it
1: the,
2: would. Yeah, I made the comments in the book. Um, to think one tiny decision on man's part suddenly make this makes this all about us represents a deeply dysfunctional mental outlook on this issue. It would be like me mm-hmm. telling all my friends that I single handedly cured myself of a life threatening disease simply because I chose to hold out my arm and receive a shot. All must gasp and marvel at my magnificent medical expertise. The libertarian free will exercise of humble childlike faith is a matter of surrender, not power, ability, expertise, dominance, autonomy, or control.
3: I'm, hmm. I'm just glad to find out. I'm not I'm not crazy all of these years when I was telling this to my uh, Calvinist, former Calvinist pastor. So thank yeah. you for affirming that I was right. So yeah, thanks, <laughs> guys. <Makes sense. laughs>
1: Well, well what, one more illustration, Phil, I would take it further than a shot in the arm would be if I discover I have, you know, a life threatening heart disease. And so I go to my surgeon, desperate, broken, humble, saying, please, I, I, I believed for whatever reasons, the person who revealed my condition to me and I, my surgeon, I go to him and I say, please help me. I, I give myself to him. And then he performs the intricate work of, you know, heart transplant, uh, how absolutely absurd to in any way, give the patient credit for him being fixed. He's going to be, I I did nothing. I I, I took no part, no part at all. Did I play? I get no credit for the fact that I'm still standing here today. I, I, thank God for surgeons. Thank God for people who spend years and years in medical school. Nobody in their right mind is going to give an ounce of credit to the man for participating in his heart surgery or somehow helping the surgeon, like because he, because he asked the surgeon or or, or was willing to participate in the surgery, that somehow that, that helped the surgeon in his performing of the surgery. I mean, it, it is just uh, uh, a bit absurd.
0: You know, Jordan, I, I would even, I honestly would take it a step further because St. Because Paul takes it a step further, right? So listen to this. Now, granted, this is the guy that has literally said in Romans 6, it is of grace. If it were of works, by definition, it would not be of grace, right? Then it wouldn't listen be a to gift. That. Right. So listen to what Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 3. I'll start in 5. What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. Now, hold on. This has to do with salvation. This is in the context of belief. Listen to this. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Notice they're not saying, I'm not doing anything, right? I'm not actively participating in their faith, right? But they are making that claim. I planted the seed. I preached the gospel. Apollos comes later on and teaches them the things about the gospel and how to practically apply this thing to their lives. But God is the one making it grow. But listen, but only God who makes things grow is worth anything. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. Ah, here we go. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's, God's building. Y'all know what that word co-workers is in Greek? Guess what? I it's, do because
1: you you taught me in our last session.
0: It's synergy, <laughs> so I have no idea why Calvinists will harp on this this word, the center, the it, it, uh, it's synergy. They better the reports of the devil. Like no rip that
2: verse, rip that verse out of the Bible. You better do it quick.
0: You better do it quick because <laughs> and that's not the only place right? We went over more of these in Jordan's episode, so I won't rehash that information here, but I just want to make the point that in the context of salvation, in the context of belief, Paul says that both him and Apollos do things, but do they take credit for their coming to faith? Are the Corinthians coming to faith? No. They still say the growth because they can plant seeds all day long. Remember Jesus' parable about the seeds and the sower, the one who sows, right? Some seeds land on rocky ground. Some seeds land and the birds come and swoop them away. But other seeds land on good ground. And it's that good ground that, notice it's good ground, by the way, that God causes the growth in, right? And and synergistically, Paul, Apollos, and we can even say us, work together for One's salvation. Does that mean we merit it by any stretch? Nope. And guess what? We're even going to get rewards for it. So there is some some sense there. But the point is, and this involves, I believe, people praying to God that someone would be saved. Right? People coming to someone and and sharing the gospel with them, and then praying for them to be saved later on. That's all activity that's in some way, shape, or form attributing to this person's salvation, and yet. We still say at the same time, but without God, none of that, or or I should say all of that would be in vain. It would be purposeless because without God, and God is the only person that can do this, right? Or I should say the only three persons that can do this, but God is the only three persons that can do this in the sense of if anything is credited to anybody, it's God. And that's how we at the same time can say that. And we synergistically cooperate with God.
2: We get a huge amount of pushback for saying that that there's such a thing as synergism in the Bible because we are called upon to repent and make a free will, libertarian free will decision to place our faith in Christ. And your word merit, Tyler, is absolutely critical. It's absolutely vital to this entire conversation because we contribute nothing of
1: merit. Right,
0: not self. that we contribute nothing, but we right. contribute nothing of merit. Yeah. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that,
1: that's that's where there's all these assumptions that come in, uh, you know, at, about when this these sort of questions arise, uh, and this kind of gets to the question, Tyler, w- w- we discussed in our last video about well, why did you believe in your neighbor didn't? You know, are you right. better? um But it, it's just, I think the whole questions in in this this realm, these questions in my mind are just, you know, and init, my initial thought is just where, where are you getting these questions from in the first place? What, what is leading right. me to ask this? Because it's not the Bible. Wh- where in the Bible does, is there a scripture that has a problem with somebody believing as if somehow faith is going to, to distract or detract from the glory of God? Like what, where is this concept coming from? Cause to me, you know, it, it, it it's hard not to just want to say, who are you old man to question God? This is how right. God want why are you why are you questioning the way he has done it he says he saves those who believe he says he gives life to the one who comes to him who are you old man to question that why are right. you claiming that that somehow steals glory from god who are you to question the way the potter has chosen to to m- mold the clay this is how he's done it and if we have explicit passages and we've we've discussed i think just just a minuscule amount of the Explicit life uh, uh comes after or 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 faith precedes regeneration texts that are in the scripture. There's so many. And so if if the explicit teaching of the Bible is that grace, life is something that is accessed through faith, then why are you arguing against that? Why are you coming up with what in my mind are little more than philosophical and emotional arguments against what the scripture just plainly says? Right. You're presenting right. an emotional argument. That is, is, is you can't find grounds for it in the Bible because the Bible has no issue with saying the 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 burden is on us to believe or not, and that belief is is not meriting. It's actually Paul will say in Romans that it's because it's by faith that it can rest on grace. So the nature of whatever faith is is something that sets up the ability for salvation to be by grace because the nature of faith is such that it it's not meritorious it doesn't earn anything it doesn't obligate god that's the nature of what faith is and so it's because it's by faith that it may rest on grace uh right. the calvinists would have to say it's because it's by unconditional election that the promises can come by by grace well no that no it's not it, it's it's faith and so i th- i just think there's there's so many assumptions being brought into these questions, things that are being assumed about the nature of what faith is, uh, things that are being assumed about about all these different aspects that that really, I think if you remove these assumptions, these questions, these objections, uh, uh, there's no reason to raise them in the first place.
0: Right. Anytime that somebody brings to me the concept of stealing glory from God, I just automatically rebut back, Oh, you mean the glory that Jesus says that he gives me that, that, that glory. I'm just saying, you I mean, can't John steal something that you're given, can't still something that's given to you, bro. Like, I mean, that's stupid. John 17, 22 says this very thing, the glory you gave to me, I have given to them. This is the glory that Jesus shared with the father before the world was created. So we're talking about the same glory here. But you can't steal something that's given to you. Um, but to that point, I guess I would say, um, you know, Dr. James White, because I, I just th- for some reason, that Twitter post of his just uh, came into my mind. Is it resonating now,
1: in your head? It
0: is. It is. But now he's got three Where's hours the- of material he can stick in his pipe and smoke so but we do got some uh we do got some audience questions and so I want to uh I definitely want to get to them. Yeah, I, go ahead.
1: I, ha- I hate to do this, but I'm gonna kick myself for the rest of the week if if I don't say at least one one little thing about John six forty four, because I know yeah. so many of yeah. Calvinists so will have checked out at that point and will say, Well, there you go. He can't handle yeah. John six forty four. So Go, so Tyler. I just want to say that actually John six John six forty-four completely just reiterates and reconfirms everything I was already saying. I wasn't jumping over it because I was I was afraid to to handle it. Um it was just we're not exegeting John six, which we've talked about, uh maybe walking through the whole passage sometime, Tyler. Me and Josh discussed that, I think, yeah when you jumped off the other night. But so John six forty-four, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So in the calvinist handling of this text the drawing right would be equivalent to regeneration is that correct would you say that's accurate um, not, not necessarily i think i think
2: what the calvinist would say is that that the drawing it's god's determining will that they would become believers and that he draws believers and that he does not draw those who, whom he has not determined to believe so i don't i'm not sure that that refers to regeneration in the in the calvinist okay. mindset um it could but it it i don't think it's necessary that it has to refer to that
0: is it real quick okay. just a clarifying question then phil is does it follow then that that act leads to regeneration then like you can't separate the two
2: well um i don't know i mean i don't okay. i think I think there's probably a variety of answers that the Calvinists that the sure. whole Calvinist community might give to that question. Um and they might not all answer it the same way.
0: No, fair enough. Fair enough. Go ahead, Jordan. Sorry, I didn't mean to go okay. over there.
1: So no one no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So the drawing precedes the coming. But we know that what so whatever this drawing is, you know, if it's if it's not regeneration. I think some might say this is, you know, somewhat synonymous with that, but the coming comes after. And we know in, uh, you know, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry. The one who believes in me will never be thirsty. So coming and believing are somewhat used interchangeably uh, throughout John 6. and And both are what leads to the subsequent being made alive, you 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 uh, you come, and whoever comes will not be hungry. So coming satisfies your hunger. Coming means you are partaking in the bread of life that is Christ, and believing means you will never be thirsty. So you are drinking the blood of Christ through belief. So whatever this drawing is, um, you, you can't say that. This that life had to come before the coming because we know that it's after the coming, it's after the believing that one experiences life because you can't, unless, uh, uh, where is it? Unless you eat the, the flesh of, of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I already talked about this verse earlier um, and now I'm trying to find it, but it's in here somewhere. You have no life in you unless you first come and believe. And so again, I would just say the order here, whatever you you say the drawing is, well, you can't say it's regeneration life. You can't say that the life somehow comes before the coming, that you have to be made alive in order to come. Um, Because the life is a result of coming and believing, of consuming, of feeding on
0: Christ, who is the bread of life. Gotcha. That's good. Uh, That's good. Phil is there anything you'd like to add before we get to these audience questions? Um
2: just that um the uh if you look at John six forty four and it says, No one can come to me except unless the father draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day, that phrase I will raise him up at the last day also appears in John six forty where he says, it is the will of my Father that all who look to the Son and believe in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So who is the group of people that he's going to raise up at the last day? It's those who believe. Mm -hmm. So go back to verse 44, and what is it? Who are the people that the Father draws? Those who believe. So now the question is, do they believe because the Father draws them, or does the Father draw them because they believe? John 6 doesn't answer that question. Right Because, it's because must, it, it, was, it wasn't designed to answer all of our soteriological questions. It's simply yeah. and, and the word, the word for draw in the Greek can mean to drag. Uh, it can mean to attract. It can mean to woo. Um, and there's nothing in the text that indicates the idea that this drawing of the father is irresistible. Nothing. So the Father draws people, and Jesus says, "I will draw all men to myself." And so, when it in, in proximity, in close proximity to that, it's it's people who have learned of God, and who have known of the Father, and so people who have learned of God and who and who has some kind of experience or some kind of some kind of uh, influence from the Father. That's what drawing means, because that's the that's what that's the text. That's the context of what of what that that whole mm-hmm. f- verse is all about. You know, so um, it's it, it, it's it is just simply an antecedent assumption that if that God drawing people is the same as God predestining people to believe and to be saved, it is simply not in the text. Mm-hmm. So it is an antecedent assumption that is made based on an antecedent ideology that has already been adopted prior to approaching the text. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. that is that is what John Calvin did. That's what Augustine did. And I mean John Calvin had his deterministic framework in place long before he ever approached the biblical data. And I argue Agreed. for that in the book. And I think that's a pattern
1: that we need to avoid. Agreed. So the first... Uh, verse- we're referencing is is 45 which comes directly after 44 and so i think it's always important to read those uh, together where he says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on the last day what that does is like you said both the calvinists and the non-calvinists at this point now have to come up with the category of okay well who are these people you know because that's not answered here who are the people that are drawn why are they drawn This text should initially lead us to way more questions than it does answers. Uh, And then he goes on in 45. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. So who is it that is drawn? Who is it that comes? Well, it's those who have heard and learned from the father. So now you could could insert into that and say, okay, well, they're hearing and learning from the father because they were unconditionally elected, chosen for the foundations of the world to, to do so. Well, well okay, not text,
2: but not it's not in there,
1: the you know. And not so we both have to go through the, it's not there. So we, we both have to come up with, okay, well, who, who are these people? Who are they? Why are they drawn? When yeah, are they drawn? Like, what is it and that, and that and makes like, them?
2: Yeah. And like I said, John 640 answers that question. Mm-hmm. It's those who believe. Right. And again, we come back to the same question do they believe because the father draws them or does the father draw them because they believe the text doesn't answer that question the text what jesus is trying to say is that the only way anybody is going to be saved is for the father to perform some kind of work that's going to provide that salvation for people the only way that anybody's going to come to jesus in faith is because of the work of the father if the if the father didn't work and didn't help us, didn't do something to provide for that salvation and to give us the, the ability to come to him in faith, then nobody would. Nobody would be saved, and we'd all be lost. We'd all fry. Mm-hmm. That's all Jesus is saying. He's not saying anything about the order of salvation. He's not saying anything about the mechanics of salvation at all. He's, say, he's simply talking about the who, not the what.
0: Mm-hmm. Right Dale, is so much anything- more that
1: could be said about John six.
0: Yeah, for sure. I was just
1: gonna say so much more. This 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 deserves an uh, uh, entire episode because there's there's a lot to to dive into here.
0: Agreed.